Welcome to another episode of a special podcast we like to call From the Archives. These are hand-picked sermons and sermon series preached in our church over the years by some of the pastors, elders, and special guests we've had the privilege of listening to. We hope and we pray that as we listen to these classic messages, we'll be challenged in our walk with Jesus and encouraged to trust in him more and more. That being said, let's dive into the episode. So we are up to episode four in our From the Archives series, um, and it just so happens to be episode four of our series Encouraged, looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've had Jonathan Thomas, we've had Matt Bounds, and now it is my privilege, my honour, my awkward situation to introduce myself. Yeah, part four was me preaching and trying to draw together a couple of the strands that had laid, been laid down by Matt and John. Um, we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm trying to get us to think more about role models, think about relationships, um, and to think about how we interact with one another, but most importantly, to be basing that in our relationship with God in Christ. So um, it's thinking about action, it's thinking about reality, how we live out the encouraging truth of the gospel, um, keeping a, a special focus and a special mind on what we have through that gospel. So I should shut up and let you get on listening to my pre-recorded voice. Have you ever been um, to one of those, I'm still not sure of the word, the correct terminology, it could be like a show, it could be called a conference, it could be like called um, a fair. Um, you go there as part of work or maybe when you were trying to decide where you were going to go to university or something like that. Basically, they're, they're vast halls, big kind of auditoriums that have been divided into little stalls where hundreds of different companies or universities or, or, or whatever the niche is have set up stalls to kind of inform and to sell uh, Conference, show, fair, M's, and you go to these. Trade, a trade show sort of thing. Um, and depending on what you're there for, what kind of trade it is, um, there'll be different companies promoting their ways. Um, now, stop me if you think this is terribly awful, but I have never been to one of these trade shows or to these fairs or conferences actually wanting to find out what the people on the stalls have got to say or what they've got to sell. My sole motivation every time I've ever been to one of these is swag. Swag is the free stuff that they give away to try and entice people in. T-shirts, pens. Can you imagine how many pens you can collect in these shows? I remember once I I got uh, boxes of mints. Um, I got a a fold-up frisbee in one. You know, a careers fair at the end of university. I remember going, I had no intention of... A career with Procter and Gamble or who else was there. But I tell you what, I take the free pot noodle. Uh, It's like you go into these things and you might think this is terribly awful, but you listen to a tiny bit of spiel in order to get your free t-shirt, to get your free hoodie, to get your branded umbrella or your fold-away frisbee. I think it's fair to say that 90% of the people who stop to talk to the demonstrators probably have that same attitude. Yeah, it's a lovely product, but you know what's lovelier? The free T-shirt. Thank you very much. Could I milk you for some more freebies? Um, I've never looked at those stores as potential employers or people I'm going to do business with or whatever, just somebody to 
to take from. Generally, we've got a pretty similar attitude when it comes to apps on our phone or services on the internet. don't know whether you've ever thought about this. Um, we're much happier, we're much like, more likely to use a service or an app if it's free, aren't we? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sign up to Facebook because it doesn't cost us anything. We'll use Twitter or Instagram because it doesn't cost us anything. Uh, but the attitude really that we have of wanting to have for nothing is revealed when we start seeing adverts in those kind of areas, spheres, where maybe a pop-up comes up from the internet site or um, Facebook puts an advert in the middle or Twitter shares with you a, a tweet and you say, well, I never followed that person. And you think to yourself, well, how dare they? How dare they interrupt me and show me an ad that I didn't ask for? Because we want the service, we want the app, we want the product for free. We don't want to give anything back. We just want to bleed them dry. We want to milk them for all they're worth. We want everything we can get without giving anything in return. I use the Sky News app on my phone. I don't know why. It's just the one I go for. It was free. And every now and again, a little advert pops up. and, And it comes in such a way that my fat fingers tap it by mistake. I'd never tap it on purpose. And all of a sudden, it goes into full screen video advert mode. Gillette. Do I need Gillette? I do need it. Will I use it? No. Um, And it makes me mad because, hi, Sky News. I just want to take, take, take. I don't want to actually see you funded through ad revenue streams or or however. That's none of my concern. I just want what you've got to give me for free, please. One more example in case those both missed you. Have you ever been to the supermarket and there's been somebody there handing out free samples? Um, yeah, like me, your antenna goes off. As soon as you walk through the door, you're like, there's free samples over there. I'm going to get some. It doesn't matter what they are. Um, You know, you go and they're free samples of washing up powder and I'm drinking it. No, that's that's not true. Um, And when I get there, I want to have as much as I can. Free samples, I don't know, you chop them up a little bit small, is it? Maybe I'll need one or two to really figure out what's going on. But as soon as they start telling you about the product, about maybe where you can go, which aisle you've got to go to to shop on, what the deal on, you think to yourself, blinkers down. I don't want to know. I just want more of the free stuff, please. You, don't, you want to take without having to give anything back. I'm willing to wager that at some time, most of us have had that attitude in some arena or other. And I'm also willing to wager that at some point, most of us have been in relationships where we felt like, well, that's how we're being treated. We've complained or we've noticed that there's somebody in our lives who seems to be take, take, take. Oh, I put in so much into this relationship, but all they want to do is take. All they want to do is take. I'm being bled dry here sometimes, we think. We don't often see ourselves as friends or families in these uh, situations. We see ourselves as exploited individuals. Just really, as we've been exploiting the app makers or the business people showing in the trade show or the person giving away the free samples. We've all had relationships where we felt like we're on the other side of that. And that attitude that we've all displayed and that we've all been on the receiving end of is really the attitude that Paul and his ministry pals in Thessalonica are being accused of having. They're being accused of coming to Thessalonica, to the Thessalonian church, or establishing the Thessalonian church there, to bleed them dry. To get as much as they can from these vulnerable, naive, weak-minded people, 
without giving them anything in return. That's the accusation that was floating around, kicking around, being made against them. Now, that's a pretty full-on accusation to make, isn't it? To say, oh, do you know that guy Paul who came? And you know his mates who came for a little while and they stayed and then they moved on? They just came for all, to get out what they could get out. To not to give anything and to move on to their next victims. Like con men travelling from town to town. And you can imagine the people opposing Paul, not wanting the message of the gospel to take root in Thessalonica, saying that very thing, can't you? Accusing him of treating these new Thessalonicans, new Christians in Thessalonica, um, just as somebody to bleed dry. Someone to milk for all they're worth and then to move on. Actually, that kind of accusation against leaders in um, Israel isn't anything new. That's the kind of accusation that's levied against the, the um, leaders of old in Israel in the book of Ezekiel. God is the one who makes that accusation against them. And if I'll just share with you a little bit from chapter 34, the prophet speaks the words of God here, and he says, Woe to you shepherds of Israel, i.e. you leaders, the people who are in charge, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Yet you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and you slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. When we hear those words, okay, I kind of get the picture, yeah. There's somebody who's in charge, and and they're fleecing, pun intended, the, the, the flock that's underneath them. Now, let's be clear. When God accused the shepherds, the leaders in Israel of that at the time, he was right. That is exactly what they were doing. And he promised to do something about it. He promised to remove those leaders and install his own shepherd, the good shepherd, Christ, as the main leader. Um, But the opponents of Paul, of Silas, of Timothy, of the others who were there, who were simply saying, uh, you're following in your great-grandparents' footsteps. You come in here, you're trying to set yourselves up as the boss so that you can take, 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 take. Was their accusation true? Is that what Paul had gone to Thessalonica to do? Well, it's a strong accusation to make. It's a good accusation to make if you're trying to, um, you know, dirty someone's name. There's no smoke without fire, is there? As soon as you hear that, well, hang on, maybe Paul was here to try and take from us. Maybe he was here kind of um, on the con. Um, Maybe there is truth to the rumor that Paul and his pals only came to Thessalonica to get what they could before moving on. And they did move on. So maybe they did get everything that they could get and moved on to the next town and the next town and the next town. Yeah, the difference between Paul and the shepherd leaders of old was that the accusation isn't true. Actually, the accusation couldn't be further from the truth. And so confident is Paul in his actions in his attitude, in his conduct when he was with them, that he calls on two very specific witnesses to how he behaved. First of all, he calls on God. He says, as God, as my witness. Twice he says that. We never, verse 5, we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. Then again in verse 10, he says, you are witnesses, and so is God of how holy and righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. I mean, if the accusation against Paul and, and Paul and pals is strong, so is his defense. It's even stronger, perhaps, you might say. You'd be an absolute fool, wouldn't you, to call God, who sees everything, 
everything on the outside and everything that was going on in Paul's heart as a witness to his attitude and his actions and his conduct while he was there. If you'd been acting in any kind of selfish way, in any kind of I want to gain from these people kind of way, uh, Paul's being stupid by calling on God. But he knows that his motives were pure. He knows that he conducted himself correctly. And so he's able and and, and willing to call on God uh, to be a witness to how he acted. Yet he goes a step further, doesn't he? He doesn't just call on God where he can say, oh, you know, as strong as that is, it's also quite easy, I suppose, as God is my witness. Well, if I'm out for all I can get, perhaps I don't even believe in God. And so, you know, it means nothing to me. He goes on and he says, not just the one who can see my heart, but a second witness is the people. He calls on them um, in the church to remember how he'd acted, what he'd done, and to make a judgment for themselves. He says, you remember, as does God. You remember. And in a sense, that's even bolder, isn't it? Because if someone's in two minds about you, and you say, go on then, think about how I behaved. Think about how I acted. Think about the things I said and how I conducted myself. Do you think these accusations are true? You were there. You know, that, that, that's a real bold offense. Because if he had conducted himself in any kind of way where this accusation could have stuck, then straight away someone would say, well, yeah, hang on a second, you did kind of milk us dry. You did bleed us dry and then move on rather quickly. But he knows his conscience is clear, his conduct was fine. That wasn't a situation at all. He wasn't out for all he could get. In fact, he reminds them of some of his attitudes and his actions. And uh, let's quickly glance at them. And remember that as he's reminding them, it would have been very easy for them to say, yeah, but that wasn't true. That, that wasn't true. I mean, for example, if I stood up here this morning and said, do you remember how every time I've met all of you, how happy and jolly I've been and jovial and just full of life and fun? Some of you would go, yeah, you are generally a jolly guy. Some of you would go, pull the other one, Sam. 80% of the time I see you, you look miserable. Uh, Charlotte, for certain, would know that I'm not jolly and happy all the time and full of life. Because you know me, you know that if I made such a bold claim, you could disprove it to yourself, at least, straight away. Um, so what are the things, let's just glance at them, that Paul says he was amongst them. He says that they were like he was like uh, a young child. Some translations, the one we read, said that they were gentle among them. He likens himself to a nursing mother says that he cared for them, that he loved them, that he shared with them, that they were like a father figure to them, that they encouraged them, that they comforted them, that they urged them. That's the attitude. Those are the actions of Paul and his missionary partners. Those aren't the attitudes and the actions of somebody who's out to get all that they can. So what's the truth about Paul then in the face of these accusations? Well, the truth is, He's the exact opposite of a wolf on the prowl in sheep's clothing to get all that he can from the flock. The complete opposite is, well, he sums it up best in the two phrases he uses in verse 7 and verse 11. Just as a nursing mother cares for her child. And then later he says, as a father deals with his own children. Not like a wolf hunting a flock. Like a parent, like a nursing mother or a father. I want us to pause for a second and to consider how utterly counter-cultural that attitude is. It's a total inversion of what usually 
happens. Here's going to come up on the screen um, what usually happens, the way of the world. We use others to enrich ourselves, okay? Go back to the trade show. Go back to the careers fair. You're using others to enrich yourself. You're taking the freebies. Go back to the apps. You want to use all those core developers and all those people working in server storage centers somewhere else. You want to use them. You want to take them to enrich yourselves. The person giving out the the freebie in the supermarket, you want to take from them to enrich yourself. Some of the relationships we're thinking about where, where we're upset at how people have treated us and we think, yeah, do you know what they've done? They've used me to enrich themselves. And that's what usually happens. Now, you can sit there and you think, well, you know, I'm a pretty nice guy. I don't normally take advantage of people. I don't normally use other people to enrich myself. But we've all done it. Uh, Human history shows us ultimately that is the way of the world. Whenever someone is really in a position to take advantage, they do take advantage. We can feel smug and holier than thou about ourselves. But ultimately, that's where human nature leads us. We use us. We get us rather than give us. We use others to enrich ourselves. Yet, when Paul comes and he says, you know what, I was like a parent here. I was like a mother. I was like a father. He flips that on its head. Um, totally changes it. And all of a sudden, it becomes a relationship where he's saying, I used myself. I gave of myself to enrich you, to enrich others. That's the inversion that takes place. Look at some of the expressions he uses to describe their time with them. Verse 3, he says, we didn't trick you. We didn't trick you. Verse 6, he says, we could have asserted authority, but we didn't. Verse 8, he says, we shared our lives with you. Verse 9, he says, we we toiled, we endured hardship, we worked night and day so as not to be a burden. We were like mothers, we were like fathers. We used ourselves, we gave of ourselves. To enrich you people there. The way of the world is the exact opposite. Our natural inclination is the exact opposite. I'm going to get from you as much as I can so that I can be built up. Paul says, you know what? I came as a parent. And a parent's natural instinct is not to take, take, take. It's to give. It's to give of selves to enrich others. And when you think about it in terms of that parent-child relationship, it makes sense, doesn't it? Um, you'd have to be a truly deluded person to think, I'm going to have a child and have a little baby because I think it'd be wonderful for me. Because I think I can be enriched by that. Anyone who's ever had a child under those uh, pretenses has very, very quickly been disappointed, haven't they? Because you realize that as soon as you have a child, it's not take, take, take. It's give, 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 give. It's giving of self to enrich the child. I mean, he uses the expression, isn't he? A nursing mother. What's the relationship there between a mother and a newborn baby? They're literally giving of themselves to feed and to build up the child. And I know this from personal experience. I mean, my parents, if they thought that they were going to be better off by having me, then 30 years down the line, they are Uh, looking like they made a pretty bad investment. I'm 30 years old. I'm still costing them money. I'm still costing them time. I'm still causing them stress. 
And in fact, things are actually getting worse for them because now I've multiplied, okay? And I'm passing that burden of my two kids onto them very often. There's more Christmas presents to be bought. There's more birthday presents to be bought. There's more mini-me's coming knocking on the door saying, will you look after me today? Can you stay in and watch me and feed me and, and care for me? Ducky daycare is, you know, open for business and we are getting everything we can from it. If my parents thought that having children was in some way going to be a way for them to to use us to enrich themselves, then they were crazy, weren't they? Because I've cost them so much. They've had to pour so much of themselves, their time, their money, their resources, their energy into me. I have cost them and I continue to cost them. But of course, that's not why people have kids, is it? I hope it's not why people have kids. If you're thinking about having kids for that reason, don't. Because it's, you know, it's a lot of hard work. We have kids knowing that we're going to be able to enrich them. That that relationship for the majority of our lives is going to be us giving of ourselves to enrich them, to build them up, to serve them, to love them, and to care for them. And that's the attitude that Paul and Silas and Timothy lay claim to. Not like wolves, not like the shepherd leaders of old, who are feeding from the flock, bleeding them dry, totally turning that upside down, saying we're like parents, like mothers, like fathers amongst you, giving of ourselves to serve you, to enrich you. Now, here's the question. Was Paul just one of the greatest guys in history, just one of the smashingest blokes you'd ever meet and bucked that kind of cultural trend? Was he just that wonderful a human being that he'd never think to fleece anybody else? That he'd never think to cause anybody else any harm? Why is it that he can stand up and say, do you know what, I came to you and I could have milked it. I could have tricked you. I could have got you follow between me. You read the book of Acts, there were people trying to worship them. You know, he could whip up a crowd. He says, no, I didn't want any of that. In fact, it cost me. I suffered, there was trial, there was hardship, I had to work hard, I worked a normal job so I could come and speak to you and care for you in my spare time, a volunteer basis almost. Was he just that wonderful a guy? What happened that made him be able to turn the way of the world on its head and start, go back to it please Al, um, using himself to enrich others, specifically here the Thessalonians? Well, really? He's doing nothing more than imitating Christ, is he? He's doing nothing more than imitating Christ, which is what he calls the churches that he writes to in the New Testament so often to do. Um, Putting others first, having this attitude is is a feature of Paul's writing, isn't it? You can go to almost every single letter that he wrote to a church and you'll find in there some kind of instruction to put others' needs first, no more so than in Philippians chapter 2, when he writes to the church and he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You can kind of see that coming to play. And then he says, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ. He he sees this kind of giving of self to enrich others as an embodiment of what Christ 
did for us. We know that he goes on from there in, in 2 Philippians to describe that wonderful description of how Christ gave up everything, how he gave up everything for our sake, of how he, he really was the ultimate user of self to enrich others. Colossians 1, uh, Paul writes, and he, he describes the Christians before they found faith in Christ. And he says, you were strangers. You were aliens to God. You weren't people who had any kind of relationship where he owed you anything. Yet, the essence of the attitude of Christ was to come and to enrich by giving of self. And it's that loving, caring relationship, that parental giving of self to enrich others um, that he's calling the Thessalonian church to imitate of him, isn't it? Uh, The example there of caring, of loving, encouraging, comforting, and urging others um, to benefit from them at their own cost. He's saying, you know what? Grow in Christ-likeness. Grow in this. What does Christ say to us about it? Well, Christ says this. He says, I am the firstborn over all creation. I am the one who is uh, over all. I am the one who made everything, who rules everything, who um, is the king. But I didn't come to trick you. I didn't come to um, use falsehoods to benefit myself, no. I came to share my life on your behalf. Christ endured hardships for our sake, didn't he? And he declared boldly, give me your burdens and instead I will give you rest. That's where the inversion came from. Jesus came and he died so that blind people who didn't even realize that they were blind could see. So that deaf people who didn't even realize they were deaf could hear. So that dead people who didn't even realize that they were dead could be made alive. That, for me, is the ultimate summing up of this attitude. It's the ultimate act of that attitude. And and this kind of phrase, I think, encapsulates what Christ did. He used himself, his very body, his very life that he took on to enrich us. To make dead people Come to life. Christ so loved us strangers, as aliens from God, that he gave himself everything. More than a mother, more than a father would. But what does that actually mean for us then? That's all very well and good, isn't it? Having this kind of example. Seeing it in Paul a little bit, kind of understanding it. Seeing it in Christ and thinking, well, you know... um, That's what Christ did. I I could never, you know, get close to doing anything like that. Well, I think there's two um, quick applications. Firstly, and practically, um, a few weeks ago, Matt was preaching to us about being role models, about how we're encouraged to imitate. And I think we found here a prime example of how we can be role models to others and the sort of things that we should be looking to imitate in our role models. Shouldn't we be following Paul's example as he follows Christ's example of loving, 
of caring, of turning upside down that worldly cultural norm and having this attitude amongst us where we're willing, where we're eager to give of ourselves to enrich others. I think the first point of application has to be this. We need to to look at all the relationships that we're part of and we need to stop asking the question, what can I get out of it? And we need to start asking the question, what can I give into it? What can I give so that the other person can grow? What can I give so that the other person's life can be enriched? I think if there's any Christ-likeness growing inside of us, if we're being conformed at all more into the likeness of Christ, that is what we will be doing, isn't it? it? Looking at the relationships and the opportunities we have, not from what can I get out of it, but what can I give into it? If you've ever um, heard Jonathan um, preach at a wedding, you'll have heard this preached. It's pretty much his one and only point. Hands up who's ever heard Jonathan preach at a wedding. Okay, not, not less of us than I would have imagined. Um, standard wedding setter for John. Don't worry, he'll be listening online to make sure that I haven't said anything too nasty about him. Um, he does a decent job. He starts off and he makes a few jokes about uh, marriage. He gets some laughs. He gets some eerie silences. Um, but the main point that he always teaches when it comes to marriages is this. That we shouldn't view marriage as a 50-50 split. Give and take, 50-50. He says, we should view marriage at least as 60-40. Give 60, take 40. And then he comes in with this line, and that counts for both of you. That counts for both of you. Now, the math doesn't add up, but the idea does. Can you imagine how strong and how healthy the relationships even in this church would be if truly husband and wife were trying to outdo one another, to outgive and to enrich the other? How much better off we'd all be? 60-40, looking to give more than we can get. Imagine what our church would be like if we took that attitude that John says should be there in marriage and applied it to all of our relationships and didn't just say, what can I get out of this? Or I'll only give up to a point. I'll only give you 50 if you've given me 50 back in return. No, if we had that attitude of wanting to give more than we take, imagine what our church would be like. Imagine what our communities would be like if we truly were out and out, giving, caring, loving, one anothering. How amazing would that be? And that's the first application, isn't it? If, if, we, if we have this role model in Paul, this example of him imitating Christ, then we too should be imitating it, and we should be looking to pass that attitude on to future generations, enriching others by using ourselves. That's just being like Christ. And it's a seismic shift in our thinking, in our hearts, in our attitudes. But if Christ is in us, it will be there and it will be growing in us. That's the first thing. Let's try and imitate Paul in that. Um, Let's try and be a role model in that to other people. But secondly, and finally, I think this passage, this demonstration of Paul's paternal, parental attitude should remind us of the people in our lives who have the same attitude towards us. There's a hymn, I've never sung it, but I've heard it shared. Um, and the chorus goes like this, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. 
Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Now, as a church, we have been blessed by God. Uh, Paul elsewhere, he's happy to call the pastors, the elders in churches, literally gifts from God, sent from God to love in a parental way. As pastors and elders, that is ultimately the attitude that we strive to have on your behalf. Sometimes you'll think of us as being nosy. Sometimes you'll think of us as being harsh. Sometimes you'll think that we're not caring enough. And you know what? There will be times when those things are true. But ultimately, we're trying to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. To love and to give ourselves to enrich you, the flock entrusted to our care. So there's one blessing that almost everybody in this church can count. That God has given them pastors and elders to look after them who are willing to love and to care and to give of themselves to enrich you, the the flock. But if all you had was pastors and elders, if that's the only blessing you could number, then yes, I would agree with you, slightly uh, shaky ground because we failed and we will continue to fail to live up to the standard we're bound to. I'm sure even the Apostle Paul from time to time failed to live this out. But here's the blessing I want us to go and to finish with, ringing out in our ears this morning, is that we have this parental figure in our lives who never fails. We have a father who is God the Father. You see, there's a huge discontinuity between um, Paul imitating Christ and what Christ actually did. I mean, aside from the fact that Christ died to save us and and all that that entails, the huge continuity is this. Paul, myself, John, Matt, Peter, Wynne, we can come and we can have parental attitudes towards you, but we're never really a parent and child, are we? We're a a pastor and a flock. We're we're brothers and sisters. We're we're friends. We're co-laborers, whatever you want to call it. But we're never actually parent and child. Yet, what Christ did, his actions, his willingness to use self to enrich us means that we don't just have a relationship like a father and child with the father. We actually have that relationship. We are actually adopted by God, sons and daughters, because of what Christ has done. He's not like a father to us. He is our father. And that cannot change. If you were in Christ, you have been adopted, and that cannot change. No matter what's going on around you, no matter what's happening in any other relationship that you have, whether you're being used and abused in in the hundred different relationships you might have, that fact will remain. Count your blessings that God is our Father. And he continues to give of himself through Christ, through his Spirit, to enrich us. Now that is pretty good news, isn't it? I mean, it it would be nice for the Thessalonican church to to say, yeah, okay, Paul, you treated us really well. We're chuffed about that. It would be great if everyone here could say, do you know what? Our elders, they treat us fantastic. They love us. They give of themselves. That's fantastic. If you could name five or six of the people in your life who treats you similarly, who give and give and give and enrich you wonderfully. 
great, thumbs up. But you know what? Relationships can change, situations can change, people's temperaments can change, but God doesn't change. That's the great news. Ultimately, that was the good news for the Thessalonians. That through Christ, they had been adopted, that they were sons and daughters of the Father. So let me close with these words that he uses in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2. For what is our hope? What is our joy? Or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. If Paul, just a father figure, like a father to them, could say that, how much more our actual father in heaven? How much more delight How much more joy and glory is there in our Father in heaven, who is our actual Father, not just our Father figure like Paul? Let's imitate Paul. Let's be people who live out this attitude, willing to use, to give of ourselves to enrich others. Let's do that. Okay, I want that to be something that marks us as a church of selfless, sacrificial giving to one another. Because we'll all benefit from that. But as well, let's, let's not forget. Let's count that blessing, how richly we are blessed by God. How he's given us father figures, but more than that, he has taken us. He has adopted us as his children. He not sparing his own son has brought us into his family. And he loves us with a father's love that goes far beyond those words that Paul shared. This goes far beyond the emotions we might have for our own children or grandchildren. That father who will spare nothing to enrich our lives. Let's let's remember that. Let's remember that. Let's keep that at the forefront of our minds. That's the good news this morning. And I hope you agree. Well, that's it for another episode of our From the Archives podcast. We hope that you found it challenging and encouraging. And as always, we'd like to offer you a few quick next steps that you can take right now. If there's anything that you'd like to discuss or any questions that have been raised, please do contact us via email to contact at amfordchurch.com. If you want to know more about what's going on in the life of the church, make sure that you like us on Facebook. And lastly... Why not check us out on YouTube, where you'll find additional teaching to complement our regular sermon podcast and our From the Archives podcast. Thanks for listening.